The word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You say it every week like it's no big thing, but it's a big thing. You say those words in the creed that Jesus came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. That's a big thing. Sounds outrageous. Just look at Matthew chapter 1. Joseph is a just man, and as a just man, he's going to put the best construction on things. One day, Mary, his betrothed, is found to be with child. This shouldn't bother Joseph because Mary has the perfect explanation. She says an angel visited her in her home and told her that she was conceiving a child by the power of the Most High and that she was going to be mother to God's own son. Shouldn't bother Joseph because that's also routine, right? You say it in the creed every week. But this is not a routine thing. Imagine standing in line next to a young pregnant woman at a coffee shop and she explains to you that she advocates abstinence, practices chastity, that God has conceived the child inside of her and she's going to call her son God because he is God. You might think she's making fun of something. You might think that she is crazy. You will think that she's lying or misguided. But you will not think that she is telling the truth. There is no reason why it would be any different in Joseph's time. People know how birds fly and bees buzz, and Mary's story would sound ridiculous. If you want to fault Joseph for initiating divorce proceedings, you do the same thing in his shoes. He's going to be just, he's not going to put her to shame, but he's not going to believe her either. But then an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream to tell him what's going on. Joseph, son of David, says the angel, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, 
For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The angel's words to Joseph are astounding. First of all, the angel confirms that Mary is honest and Mary has been faithful. And when Mary tells her total whopper of a story, she is only repeating the word of the Lord that the angel told her. The angel also confirms that the baby conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit and that Mary is going to be the mother of God who was begotten of his father before eternity. Furthermore, the angel tells Joseph that he is to call the boy's name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means Yahweh saves, and this child will be Yahweh at work for salvation. God is not coming in the flesh to be a powerful warlord who picks up the sword and wreaks vengeance upon sinners for their many evils against him. He's not coming to be a judge who enforces the law and makes sure people straighten up and fly right. He is coming to save, specifically to save his people from their sin. And if Joseph thinks that through a bit more, he'll know that when it comes to delivering people from sin, that normally happens by means of vicarious sacrifice. When Joseph wakes up, he drops a divorce and proceeds to marry Mary. Rather than risk putting her to shame, now he's going to bear it with her. To some, she'll always be the crazy woman who claims to be the mother of God, and now he'll be the guy who married the crazy woman. But they're not crazy, of course. They're living by faith. And you know this by faith. Keep this in mind, by the way. It isn't seeing an angel that gives him faith. It's the message the angel proclaims. You don't need to see an angel to believe, because the Lord gathers you in by his word. All of this takes place, says Matthew, to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet in Isaiah 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The same Yahweh who made heaven and earth, who led Israel out of Egypt, he becomes flesh and dwells as an embryo in Mary's womb. He is called Emmanuel, God with us, because in Christ God is with us, even sharing our human nature. Thanks to St. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1, we know that the gospel is offensive to many people. The idea that we have eternal life because the Son of God shed his blood for us is scandalous to many. But many are scandalized long before they get to the cross. They're scandalized before they get to the manger. The big offense is not that a virgin has a child. You can find some scientific speculation about that possibility, no matter how remote it might be. But no, the big offense is the idea that the human child is also God. People are okay with Jesus if he's just a baby. Part of this is because babies are cute, they happen all the time, and if some baby's birth 2,000 years ago gives us a reason to be merry and give gifts to each other in the middle of winter, well, there are worse reasons to throw a worldwide party. 
The other great thing for sinners is that if the baby is just a baby, then you don't have to listen to what he says when he grows up, or at least you can take it or leave it because he's just one voice among many. But if he's God in the flesh, then you should probably listen to what he has to say, and that's going to rub sinners the wrong way. That's part of the offense, but there's more. A lot of people are okay with God if he's just out there somewhere. A higher power of some sort scratches the itch that we came from something because everybody knows that nothing comes from nothing. And so the idea of God out there somewhere gives us a reason to think that life has a purpose. Furthermore, a God out there somewhere gives us someone to rail at when things go badly because he could have done something about it. A God who is merely out there is vague like an absent parent, and he's got to appreciate that at least you're trying to do your best. But a God who becomes flesh, who uses specific words to tell you about his particular plan for you, and then sheds his blood to atone for your sins? When God literally has skin in the game, that's going to make sinners a little uncomfortable as they ought to give him some attention. Then there's also this big divide in our culture today between physical things and spiritual things, which is partly how you get this false dichotomy between science and religion, and also why it's strangely become important for you to say also in the creed that God is the creator of all things, both visible and invisible. Our world tends to categorize physical things that we know with our senses as real, And they are real because true science can study them, verify them, teach us about them. These things should form the basis for life, many maintain, because we can all agree on them. Spiritual things, however, are not real, they say, because they are not verifiable. They're dreams and ideas that differ from person to person, and they require faith instead of offering proof. This provides sinners with a nifty way of dismissing Christianity as one mystical scheme among many. It's also why it's so tempting for churches to make Christmas about helping each other because that part makes sense and seems more real to the world than saying that the eternal God is born of a young woman in Bethlehem. However, if God breaks the rules, goes from being a spiritual concept to being a flesh and blood baby in Mary's womb, then you're going to have a problem saying he isn't real anymore. All of this is why, as I said before, that what you said before, like it was no big thing, is in fact a big thing. To say that Jesus came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, it's a statement that throws down the gauntlet. It says that no matter how many words get tossed around, And no matter who is doing the talking, Jesus' words demand honor because he is the Lord in the flesh. Like him or not, what he has to say is the last word on anything and everything. It says that God isn't just out there somewhere. He's paying attention to what the world is up to and to what you're up to. It says that spiritual things and physical things aren't separate realities because this child is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So with that one line in the creed, 
You're taking a lot of misguided notions and poking a lot of heresy in the eye. Or to put it in more churchy language, it's an important confession of faith. But you don't confess the faith just to poke heresy in the eye. You do it to confess that Jesus comes to save people from their sins. Jesus doesn't become flesh merely so that people know what God has to say. He doesn't have to become flesh for that because people already know what God has to say. Because he's declared his glory throughout creation and he's made his word known through his prophets, both his law and his gospel. Jesus becomes flesh to fulfill that word. He comes to fulfill the law by keeping God's commands perfectly and by suffering the consequences for sin that the law declares. And he comes to fulfill the gospel by shedding his blood in the place of sinners so that they might have eternal life. He comes to speak that life into his people, which is most of all why we value his word on anything and everything, because he gives us life and salvation. Jesus doesn't come in the flesh to keep a close eye and see what you're up to. He doesn't have to become flesh to do that. He becomes flesh because he knows what you're up to. All your sins of thought, word and deed, and that they're destroying you and condemning you forever. And so he becomes flesh so that he has a body to be crucified and blood to be shed in your place for your sins so that you might have eternal life. He becomes flesh to give you his body and blood to strengthen and preserve you in the one true faith and a life everlasting. Jesus didn't become flesh merely to show that the physical and spiritual can be bridged. They already are in you. You have a body and you have a soul and you were born with both under the curse of sin. Jesus became flesh to save you from your sin so that you might live forever in body and soul. You know this by faith, but it is very real because it is the word of the Lord. So confess that faith. Lean into it. And if people think you're crazy, then you're in good company with Mary and Joseph, all the saints who have gone before us, and all your brothers and sisters in Christ now. This is a great mystery and a great miracle. Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. It's a joyous mystery and miracle, too, because he is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary to save you from your sin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.